Welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast that highlights ordinary Black men doing extraordinary things. I am your host, Keith Dent, and you are listening to part three of a four-part series titled Finding True Freedom in San Quentin. This special series examines the life of Jarvis J. Masters, author of That Bird Has My Wings, the autobiography of an innocent man on death row, and Finding Freedom. At the end of part two, before he could answer, I had asked Jarvis what was living in isolation like, realizing he couldn't leave, otherwise known as solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is the practice of isolating people in closed cells about the size of a parking space for 24 hours a day, virtually free from human contact. According to some reports, somewhere between 5 and 6% of the prison population are locked in solitary confinement on any given day. According to the Vera Institute, in 2021, solitary confinement can lead to serious and lasting psychological damage. Physical and social isolation coupled with sensory deprivation and forced idleness create a toxic combination associated with a variety of harmful effects, including, among things, anxiety, anger, depression, insomnia, paranoia, loss of identity, just to name a few. In the 8,030 days when Jarvis was in solitary, he suffered from some of these symptoms. But also there was a glimmer of hope that came out of this darkness. Melody Irmachild, a criminal investigator sent in to write a social history of his life, taught him how to meditate and write as a part of his therapy, which led him to meet Lisa Leghorn, Chagdutuku Rinpoche, and Pema Chaudhran. Over the next two years working with these individuals, based on his practice of meditating and his commitment, he was asked to become a Buddhist by Chaduktuku Rinpoche himself. When asked about his reservations by Melody, Jarvis had this to say from the book, The Buddhist on Death Row. He said, I don't join clubs. I'm not going to give myself over to anything. Every time I have, it was a mistake. Upon further reflection, he continued, maybe it's that I don't deserve it. Like I'm no Buddhist, I'm a fake. A Buddhist is supposed to work to end suffering, but what about the suffering I caused? Rinpoche doesn't understand how violent I have been. But Rinpoche did understand. Melody had responded, Jarvis, if you're not worthy, no revered Tibetan Lama would be coming to see you and offering you these vows. Just relax and allow this good thing to happen. And indeed he did. We talk about this decision and how it gave him a lifeline and comfort and a newfound power to control his mind, which allowed him to be free even though he physically lived in a cell. Now on to part three with my discussion with Jarvis J. Masters. Okay, you guys are on. We're back. We're back. We're back. Okay, great, great. So yeah, let me uh, change the question a little bit. So, because uh, I know forty-one, going back forty-one years is, is a very long time for anyone. Uh, so 
I know, you know, through that those 41 years you were in Quentin, you've been in solitary for 22 years. So yeah. if you could describe what that was like and what were, what were some of the things that you had to do in order to get through that time in your life? Well, um, I don't think I could have got through that point without the support of the friends and loved ones that I have in my life. And almost all of those same folks are in my life today. So without them, I don't think I could have survived being there. And I tell you why. I tell you why. It's because when you're, you know, when you do something, then if you get caught, that's what, you know, that's the price that's the price you pay, you know, that's just, you're caught, now you're getting, you're in jail and you don't get time and, you know, in, 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 you know, just looking at things in a way that, um, that made me feel really, really in a place where I didn't, I, I, I didn't think I, I belong. You know, we're talking about San Quentin. I, I didn't think I belong here. I never thought that I did anything wrong to make me belong here. And being in San Quentin and being in isolation confinement for 22 years, you know, you, 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 you want to say you did something wrong, you know. Um, but I didn't have that. So it was a lot harder for me to sit in those cells for 22 years knowing I did nothing wrong. You know, um, you know, there were times where, you know, I I would tell myself I got to hold my mug. I can't, you know, I can't let everybody know that, you know, this is really, really messing with me. Um, but then on the other side of that, Keith, I was meditating. I was learning how to meditate. I had people bringing me books or transcripts of my teacher teaching me how to sit and just hear your thoughts and let those thoughts move out of you. You know, so a lot of times it was hard, but then at some point it got a lot easier because I was, uh, like I said, I was doing a lot of meditating. I had already got, found my my Buddhist teacher. You know, I'm a Buddhist. Um, mm -hmm. And I really, really started feeling like, you know, this is a good place to, start, you know, and when I was saying this is a good place to start, it was also a good place in that same feeling to start writing about my life, you know. Um, so sharing sharing that cell with my writing, and of course other things, but sharing that cell with my writing was, um, it was really, really quiet, and I used that, I used a lot of that to uh, tell some things in that book that I would never have said. Um, but I couldn't get to the next chapter without telling the truth about the one I was writing. So I was just, you know, you as a writer, you, you move forward because there's things that are pushing you forward to get to the point of... Um, making myself human, you know, calling myself a human being, forgetting, not forgetting that I was a human being, and also thinking about that with, in regards to everybody else in prison. You know, there's, where do we lose our humanity? 
who are the first person that teaches us that we're not human? And that, you know, I was exploring that, you know. Um, yeah. And and I'm glad you mentioned uh, Buddhism because that, I found it very profound that um, religion, that's that religion, which is not practiced as often in the United States, had such an impact on you. So kind of describe that. What what did your Buddhist practice do for you? And also, if you could, you know, uh, clear up, what are some of the misconceptions you could clear up about the Buddhist practice for our listeners? Uh, one of the things I found out in the beginning, well, not in the beginning, at some point, that Buddhism has the same problems that every other religion has, you know. Uh, it has this turmoil, it has this inner fighting, it has this great teachers, it, it just has everything. And at first, I never thought it would, I thought it was going to be something different, you know. But mm. no, it's, it's it's everything that most people would not like to um, look at, you know. Um, so when I found that out, it really felt home to me, you know, because when I found out that they were imperfect and I don't have to, you know, live up to their potential in terms of developing my spiritual practice, then I felt really comfortable because I knew someone else wasn't going to do their practice than I do. Um, so what you're saying is that it's it's the same as any other uh, religion yeah. that anyone practices, is that <laughs> it's really all on you and what you bring to the table, what you get, you'll get out what you put in. That's it. And I didn't, that was one of the first things I realized. I realized that, you know, these people are the same kind of people, you know. You're not going to some place where you're going to see this, you know, this holy, holy person who's a Buddhist. I mean, no, no. There was one time where a, a Buddhist came to see me, and he kept a vending machine because they kept his quarter. <laughs> now, that was the, and he supposed to be, you know, uh, uh, someone that, you know, that came to see me with a whole lot of things to share with me. Well, when he kicked that vending machine, he shared enough, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and and when he came in to see me, we got along really cool, you know, because I saw him kick a vending machine. Uh, but if he would have came in there and he, he had all these prayers for me, I probably would have, like, backed off of that, but... When he kicked that vending machine, I said, that's my man right there. That's the one I want to talk to because he's just as angry and frustrated and uh, it's me, you know. Mm. Um, the only difference was he had ropes and I didn't. I understand, understand. <laughs> and, yeah, that that it, it's always great to take the veil off when we see our um, our spiritual leaders in their human, in human form, so to speak. Yeah. Oh man, they treat yeah. And when I once I learned that, it was it was pretty much gravy for me in terms of uh, developing a discipline because I always knew that I wasn't the last person who was doing their practice, and I was not the only person that didn't know how to pronounce this, and I was not the only person that had problems with meditation and didn't want to understand a lot about Buddhism. I wasn't alone in that kind. Con- 
process. And, you know, when you're in prison for 22 years, it's it's really hard to find someone to think uh, that, you know, um, that my situation was in more dire than theirs, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But you don't see, I, I, I actually didn't see a lot of people, you know, when I was in the hole for all those years. Um, the same people I saw then are the same people basically I see now. You know, so I've known them 20, 25, 30 years. Mm, wow. And, and, that, and, and, that they've kind of... all, and they've seen, you know, and they've seen all sides of me. They they know me pretty well. They <laughs> know that, you know, I have this thing with being frustrated. They know that I have this thing with... Um, uh, being lazy, you know, I have this thing, you know, they know this person, Jarvis, and I'm so grateful that they know all the aspects of me, that, you know, my imperfections and um, when I bullshit around with them, they're the real deal in my life, you know. Right, and that's, and that's, and that's love. That's actually, that's love. The fact that yeah. they've seen and they know you for who you are. The jo- full yeah. Jarvis, not just Buddhist Jarvis or Jarvis, the, you know, person that's oh, the yeah. reason why you're there in the first place. And so I, I know that a lot of the um, challenges and the feelings with the guards were around, you know, the fact that one of the uh, guards had been killed. But you now, you know, Received that kind of additional, you know, notoriety with the books, and then um, how you're seen as the, you know, you're a Buddhist, and you really have changed people's lives or helped them. But is, but my question was, do the now, present day, do the guards still have the same feelings about you, especially around, you know, around the anniversary of the guards' uh, death? You know, there's 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 guards on both sides. You know, there's guards that you know, if you were to ask my visitors, uh, some of my visitors, you'd think they want to come in there and hang out with you. You know, um, but then there's other guards who, you know, you know. Um, so there's both sides of that. You know, and I've seen people make transitions from one side to the other, and one side and back to the other. You know. I've seen people who started working here being really, really angry and really, really, you know, uh, using all aspects of their power to uh, be in our will to, you know, just to survive, I think, I thought. And this was years ago. But then there's other guards who you can tell they just here to do their jobs. They're not trying to do, be anybody and... And I tell I tell these guards, you know, hey, by that person doing that, you know he's going to promote because they need this. They need what that person's doing, and that's just communicating and teaching people um, that you're the you, that you're a human being too, and that this this relationship guard and, and, and inmate, you know, doesn't have to be as doesn't have to be as rigid and has you know, clear line as it, as it used to be, you know. Um, so I, I really I really feel like 
there. I'm I'm not. I'm helped by some guards. I've seen guards help people, you know. Um, and that's a good thing, you know. And I think we're all trying to just treat each other like human beings today in San Quentin. Um, and it's hard because, you know, you're locking people up in cages. And you mm-hmm. expect for them to come out and have some well-behaved manner. It doesn't work that way, you know. Um Okay. But we're really, we're really just trying to be treated like human beings, you know. That's basically it. If you can, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Okay. Great. All right. So I guess we have one more segment. Yes, and I will, I will uh, dial back. Uh, Jarvis, hit me back, okay? Okay, I got you. Jarvis's Buddhist practice soon became his best companion and his writing and spiritual practice inseparable. Shortly after his death sentence, he read an article called Life in Relation to Death by a Tibetan Buddhist Lama, Chagduk Tuku Rinpoche. He wrote him a letter and eventually he came to San Quentin. Rinpoche encouraged him to use his intelligence toward harmlessness, helplessness, and purity. He reminded him that whether he was in prison or in a mansion by the sea, each moment provided an opportunity to practice. He learned how not to cause himself more pain. He stopped cussing out prisoners and guards. He discovered that every bit of love he could conjure up meant that he didn't have to hate. He began to write stories about his life in order to make sense of it all and use it to help others. It is unimaginable for him to think of what he might be like if he didn't have the Dharma, his teacher who has since passed, and the love and care of his friends. They enabled him to turn a situation as bad as his into an opportunity to be of some benefit. If not for himself, then for kids and their teachers who write him to say that he has made a difference, that his writings and his example are an inspiration in their lives. And we will talk about that in part four of Finding True Freedom in San Quentin State Prison. Black Men Speak was written, produced, and edited by me, Keith Dent. You can find the previous episodes wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If this is your first time listening to this series, you can follow Jarvis J. Master's story by going to his website, www.freejarvis.org. And don't forget to sign the petition in order to get him exonerated. Peace.